2: It's the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength conditioning and strength conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, and this is episode 248. We're talking about high protein diets. Dietary protein is required for the maintenance of all human body processes, providing the building blocks to support life. In humans, 20 distinct amino acids function as the raw materials for protein synthesis. Nine of these amino acids are essential amino acids, which means they cannot be synthesized by the body and must be acquired from the diet. There's been a change in recent years from the idea that high protein diets are only beneficial to athletes, to an understanding that there are broader health advantages to eating more protein. The apparent popularity of these diets uh, has increased over the last 20 years. And in 2015, the Food and Health Survey reported that 89% of Americans agreed with the statement, it is important to get enough protein in the diet. And 81% agreed with the statement, protein can help maintain muscle during aging. And finally, 65% agreed with the statement, high protein diets can help with weight loss. In this week's podcast, we cover the supposed dark side of high protein diets. Does eating a high protein diet increase the risk of kidney disease or kidney stones? Does eating more protein lead to loss of bone mass? What about the liver? Surely all that protein must damage something. All that and more on this week's edition of the Barbell Medicine Podcast. Now, in distinct contrast to all of our previous podcasts, you have not heard any nasal or respiratory sounds on the other end of the line, but I assure you that he's here. The second most handsome doctor in North America, Dr. Austin Baraki,
3: (laughs) what's going on, man? Hey, um, I don't know. Maybe because I'm a little bit lighter than usual these days, the the waking apnea is is under better control.
2: <laughs> I didn't know if you were like consciously just like
3: I'm going to not breathe for
2: this thirty <laughs> seconds.
3: <laughs> What's going on, man? How are you? Hey, I'm doing all right. I'm uh, currently in the middle of one of my two weeks in the hospital, dealing with a lot of interesting and complicated things. Doing a lot of teaching. Things are things are okay.
2: All right. True or false? When a doctor says that's interesting, should you be scared? Uh, probably. Yeah, probably. I, I don't want to joke about people having like medical problems or whatever, but in general, I think my experience has been when physicians say that's interesting, either they have no idea what's going on. So they're just like, hmm, interesting. Or they're worried and they're like, I need to perform, you know, an additional workup to figure out should I be worried or not. That's kind of my experience.
3: Yeah. I mean, in 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 any given specialty, the vast majority of your day-to-day is going to be relatively similar things. And so the things that don't fit that kind of usual script, whether it's, you know, oftentimes we see common conditions that present in an unusual or uncommon way, which can be interesting, or we might see rare conditions present in a kind of typical way that you would learn in a textbook, which is still interesting because it's a rare condition, or the most interesting would be like a rare condition that's presenting in a super weird rare way, which is like the least common of all things. And those are usually the hardest to diagnose. So
2: <laughs> super, super interesting in that case. Like, exactly. oh, I'm going exactly. to write this up because right. it's yes, so interesting.
3: Correct. Yep. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, you know, I,
2: I I, didn't have to do much convincing to get you to talk about protein on the on the podcast, but you were just like, what, what are we going to talk about? Well, I feel like we've extensively covered protein and I agree we've got multiple podcast episodes, multiple articles on protein. Th- this podcast, this is what you send your mom or or somebody else in your family who's like protein's going to do this, that or the other, you know, to your kidneys, to your liver, to your bones. Something's bad's got to happen. This is the podcast you send to them. Not that it's going to change their mind, not exactly. that they're going to listen
3: to it. <laughs> that was going to be my follow up. Yeah.
2: <laughs> not that anything like useful is going to come out of this, but you can feel like you did some good in the world by sending this podcast to somebody who says, oh, a high protein diet is going to do something nefarious to you. But before we get into this week's podcast, a few announcements. One, we do have new YouTube videos. I know what people are say- saying back home. They're like, hey, you're, you didn't post your meat recap. That's true. I uh, recorded the entire YouTube video, talking head kind of thing, me analyzing and talking about the meat. Uh, I did it without an SD card. So yep, mistakes still happen, even if uh, you've been publishing stuff on YouTube for years and years and years. I have re-recorded it. And now I have to re-edit it, and it'll be up when it's up. I apologize to all the people waiting to see this performance. But, you know, if you can't wait, just go over to my Instagram. It's posted on there. It's the first post. And, uh, yeah, that's there. Uh, We also have our tech support series. That's up on uh, YouTube as well. A new episode of that. Um, And uh, we have some new seminars uh, up for uh, attendance. So our live in-person seminars, we're going to be in Australia in january you guys already knew about that we'll be in sydney and perth a few spots left at both of those places in january of 2024 san antonio just came on the uh schedule so i believe we'll be there i think it's april as i recall looks like in the summer we'll be or or early fall we'll be in europe those aren't uh up just quite yet but they should be in the next few days and then it looks like we're going to be in virginia uh at some point as well next year so i think that's our 2024 schedule and people are like well why don't you come to rhode island it's like maybe 2025 but for 2024 we'll be in australia we'll be in europe we'll be in virginia and then we'll be in san antonio so if you've wanted to uh uh attend a barbell medicine seminar and you could be at any of those locations that's good news for you those are all linked in the description below and finally today only We have 20% off our apparel. So you can go over to our website. If you want to represent Barbell Medicine, you want to contribute to the cause, you can get 20% off on all apparel using the code APP20, A-P-P-20 at checkout. Get 20% off. Uh, We also have like sale items, stuff we're trying to offload before the new year. And so they, they say Barbell Medicine on there. It's going to increase your lifts. It's science. I don't know what else to tell you. You can do that on the website. All right. The second edition of our newest segment, Quack Watch, Okay, Austin, did you watch this thing yet? Uh, yeah, I did. Unfortunately. All right, so we'll play. We'll play the audio for those at home. Um, and I actually haven't watched this in the last three days, so this is the time we're just going to play the audio and then we'll, we'll weigh in on this.
0: When you wand your water, you actually become more hydrated. This wand will bring your water back into coherency, which makes it so that the water makes you more, gets into the cell more effortlessly
2: and gives you more hydration. Super cool product. I use this all the time when I travel. I was in New York recently and I only had tap water to, to drink from. I wanted to stay hydrated. So I used the wand to make sure that even tap water from New York City would hydrate me and not toxify me. Okay. I just finished this. So this is from Dr. Mindy Peltz, who just right off the bat. So she's a chiropractor. So okay. and if, if people are like, oh, is she a real doctor? It's like, well, She's doctor of chiropractic medicine, but is she a medical doctor? No. I feel like you're trying to use that doctor thing a
3: little, a little bit.
2: Uh, <laughs> it's doing some heavy lifting, I don't know. What's your take on that? Before we get into this,
3: I mean, I tend to agree. I think that part of it is, uh, you know, the context that I work in, mainly like in a hospital setting, where people, if they were to introduce themselves as such, the assumption is that you are a physician, and that is not typically. Uh, Or I wouldn't say typically. It's not always the case. Sometimes people who do not have that degree, uh, but have some other kind of doctorate, they still present themselves as such. And I think that that's probably not okay in a clinical setting where there's kind of an assumption of what that word means in a patient patient you know interaction. Um, Out in the world, like I know that PhDs are going to be introduced as doctor and things like that, and that is what it is. That's fine, whatever. But in the context of either like a clinical encounter or when delivering uh, clinical in type information, I think that that probably has some implications, and so that's kind of a thorny thing. But
2: yeah, I think it's a misrepresentation, right? Because you're using the doctor thing to sort of lend yourself credibility, right, or and, tr- and build trust right off the bat. And it's like, but if you're not a medical doctor and you're talking about medical things, I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, off the bat, there's just word salad everywhere in here. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm curious you know, when she, the first line where she's like using this wand. I, I, immediately you're like nope just like hard, hard enough. <laughs> it brings the water into coherency i believe was like the first line like what's
3: yeah i did actually a little bit of digging on this on this stuff when you when you say it sounds like word salad it reminds me of uh, i don't know if you've ever been to wisdomofchopra.com the deepak chopra uh like nonsense generator it basically just like auto generates quotes that could be said by him and that's the kind of lingo that you're dealing with here in terms of this just like whatever quantum Like spiritual, you know, energy nonsense. But I looked into what this actual product is. It's this thing, I guess, called analemma, whatever that means. It's a quartz tube that costs one hundred and eighty dollars. Or if you want to get a luxury walnut case, you can spend two hundred and fifty dollars on it. It's created by this company that was founded by two dudes. Um, On their website, I looked it up. One of them, his name is Eric Laraker. Uh, his title on the website, it said like his his professional degree. It says DMV, and I was very confused by this because it's like, you that's see the Department not of Motor Vehicles. Title. <laughs> uh, but uh, it, uh, beneath it, it said he's a holistic veterinarian, as well as an acupuncturist and a chiropractor. So I assume they actually mean DVM because that's the Doctorate of Veterinary Medicine. But it says he's he's uh, DMV. He partnered with an entrepreneur and who's you know has his own uh, you know not pertinent background here. But this tube, that's the wand that she's like stirring in her water. I went to their FAQ. It's like, what is this thing and what does it contain? So the analemma tube contains what we call, quote, the mother water. It is the water of extreme coherence and electromagnetic power as soon as any H2O molecules come in close proximity to it, they begin to arrange into a liquid crystalline structure, which is somewhat paradoxical. My like physical chemistry is, is many years old at this point. The crystalline structure of water that I'm most familiar with would be ice when it's a solid. I'm, maybe there's some kind of like in-between state that I don't, that I, I don't know of that, uh, that you can drink, but if so, that sounds cool. Um, they claim that this ultra-thin quartz vial holds the mother water inside, but it, at the same time allows the transfer of its coherent structure to water that is outside the tube. So then the question is like, what is coherent water? because that sounds to me like a like an incoherent claim (laughs) so they they say that coherent water is a supercharged crystalline structured water again not ice but like you know flowing liquid that is in harmony with our biological systems and natural energy sources like the sun and moon i also wasn't really aware that the moon was a natural energy source for us but that's a that's another aside tide i guess is the thing uh... yeah aside from gravity exactly (laughs) Uh, the coherent form of water carries greater energy in the form of complex molecular bonds, which is critical to our well-being, which was news to me as well. So the claims, as with all sorts of kind of woo-woo stuff, it improves like everything. So they claim better brain-body synchronization, which I'm not aware of what that means, reduced anxiety, which is a very placebo-prone outcome, increased power capacity, um, however they measured that, slowing down aging, however they measured that, increasing cellular energy, revitalizing your immune system, boosting anti-inflammatory pathways, somehow shielding from electromagnetic radiation. That's interesting. And then improving gut health. And I was curious, of course, where that claim came from. And they say it had a 17% improvement in the dysbiosis index which I looked into this a little bit, what is a dysbiosis index? And there are many different dysbiosis indices that have been proposed. None of them are validated on anything to mean anything about the health of your gut. So I found a paper that specifically says, it's important to emphasize that dysbiosis is not a well-defined condition and that dysbiosis indices differ with respect to methodology and clinical context and were developed in different cohorts of individuals to describe a variety of different conditions. So a 17% improvement in a made-up metric, which is awesome. so, I mean, in general, it's like she she's making the claim that this wand, which is a, a quartz tube that contains whatever mother water is, how, I don't know where they found this stuff on earth or how they created it. There's no father water. At the <laughs> yeah. Um, what I'm, what I was imagining is like in Lord of the Rings when the when the elf woman gives him like the little wa- the little uh, glass like thing shaped like a teardrop that like lights up in the dark that's like the mother water or whatever for them, but like the mechanisms of how humans absorb water are like pretty well defined um, in terms of water getting absorbed across the cell that line our gut sometimes some of it can diffuse in between the cells that are in our gut we have these transporters that absorb water usually in conjunction with sodium and glucose and so that's why for example when people have like bad diarrheal illnesses you know or or are very dehydrated i often send them a recipe for the who oral rehydration solution which is a really easy thing to make with water a little bit of some uh, sugar a little bit of some salt and yes that can be uh, improve the rate at which it is absorbed of course, that stuff has also been turned into you know unnecessary marketing products that we have kind of bashed a little bit on the podcast uh, before. Products like liquid IV and things like that that just like have some glucose and sodium that use transporters that your body already has, but claim to like improve hydration relative to drinking water. Um, so, in general, like a lot of these claims are obviously nonsense in the sense that there is no plausible mechanism by which. Altering water's structure could simultaneously treat all of these different things. We've talked about this as well before, where it's like when people make claims that this, this, this one intervention, this one supplement, this one thing treats everything. Anything that treats everything also treats nothing, uh, <laughs> right? Um, and so that that was my you know takeaway listening to these people. There's various levels of, of implausibility here. There's the implausibility on the biological front, like H two O is 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 absorbed via specific molecular transporters in your gut and why altering the overall chemical structure of your water as a whole if you could do that by stirring a little wand around in it um that would not necessarily impact how it gets transported through these transporters because they're arranged in a very particular way um And then, so that's like the biological implausibility to treat all these different things, how water could be absorbed. And then I'm sure, you know, again, like I said, my physical chemistry is many years old at this point. I'm sure there's multiple levels of implausibility from the physical chemistry standpoint, how you have whatever this substance is inside this $200 glass wand that can like rearrange all the water that it is stirred in. I'm also curious, like, why can't you just like go throw one in the ocean? and then it just like rearranges the structure of all the water on Earth and you're done. You just like fixed everything. <laughs> it's like a big
2: chunk of kryptonite. You just toss it in the ocean. You're like, wow, exactly. Well, exactly. the
3: entire water supply is yeah. uh, good to go. <laughs> yeah, it reminds me of like an old Kurt Vonnegut story, like Ice 99 or something like that, where it just like spreads as soon as it starts. It just goes all over the place. So I don't see why you couldn't just do that and just, you know, everything's suddenly coherent, but then they wouldn't they wouldn't uh, be able to sell their $200 wands to you, so.
2: Yeah, <laughs> also the, there's a lot of shade being thrown at new york city like in their water supply oh yeah it's just like really harping on man the water here in new york is substandard from a hydration standpoint like you can say what you want about the taste the mineral content that whatever but like apparently if you just stir it with this wand a 200 wand mind you like that's that's gonna change the 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 chemistry of of the water i think you know we should also probably do a podcast at some point on like oral versus intravenous or other methods of administering water right so there was a recent high-profile powerlifting meet where a lot of people received ivs in fact one of the competitors was like advertising that hey i'll start an iv on you uh you know after weigh-ins so that you can rehydrate and in general we start ivs on people well not we ain't me anymore but the medical community starts ivs on people when they can't drink They, they you know they just have a problem either actually getting uh, uh, stuff into their mouth or swallowing something like that or there's others uh, there's a break in the system you just can't otherwise get the water into your system but if you could drink water like, is it actually faster to put a, you know, small, presumably small <laughs> sort of needle in the, in the vein and, and then like have a slow, relatively slow administration of water over time? I don't know. Maybe if you're drinking and you're using an IV, that's better than like doing one or the other. But it, uh, I don't know if I can speak to that. Maybe we'll do a podcast on that, like optimal rehydration strategies and like compare and contrast.
3: Yeah, there's a lot of potential complexity there. It also depends on what kind of fluid you're administering and just all sorts of variables at play. So I I assume when you call when you call pharmacy, you're like, hey, can you you guys stir this particular bag of saline with a
2: quartz (laughs) wand? (laughs) I really need it to be coherent for my patient. (laughs) Yeah. Do you think they have access to this quartz wand? Like, come on. And they're missing the boat here. It doesn't need to be like a direct consumer thing. This could be like durable medical equipment. You could just yeah. All right. Well, look. If we (laughs) maybe we'll we'll pitch her on that idea. and We can bring it to the masses in the hospital. um okay and like i said you know last week if you had a quack watch submission send it to us media barbellmedicine.com i think we were all set for next week but this is a fun segment i think (laughs) imagine a whole podcast to just quack watch like i don't know our our listenership would either like peak go way way up or decline to zero and then we'll have to like yeah circle the wagons but all right let's get into this week's podcast we're gonna talk about protein intake um and first just to give people a lay of the land, let's talk about the average dietary intake of protein in the United States. So first off, it's the RDA, the recommended dietary allowance. Now this change is based on age. So children age one to three are recommended to have 1.05 grams of protein per kilogram body weight per day. When they get four to 13 years of age, it drops to 0.95. Uh, when they gets to uh, 14 to 18 years of age, it drops to 0.85 uh, grams of protein per kilogram body weight per day. And then in adults, over the age of 19, it drops to the common 0.8 grams of protein per kilogram body weight per day. And just as an aside, people say, well, is that total body weight? Is it ideal body weight? Is it lean body weight? It's total body weight in all of these calculations. Um, As far as the average intake in the United States, most of the data is presented in one of three ways, or sometimes all three, uh, total grams of protein ingested per day. That's uh, way number one. Way number two is the grams of protein per kilogram body weight, and that can sometimes be reported in ideal body weight or sometimes just total body weight. That doesn't mean the recommendations are given in ideal body weight, but sometimes it's assessed that way. And then also the percentage of energy from protein. So if you get, you know, four hundred calories of uh, uh, per day from protein, and you're eating a two thousand calorie per day diet, that's twenty five percent of your uh, sorry twenty percent of your daily energy intakes coming from dietary protein so in america right now uh children age two to three eat about 55 grams of protein per day whereas adults age 19 to 30 eat about 88 grams of protein per day um In general, most Americans consume somewhere between 14 to 16% of their total daily energy as protein, and on average, that comes out to be 1 to 1.5 grams of protein per kilogram body weight per day, depending on age and sex. And we've said this a number of times on other podcasts that in most adults, the average intake is somewhere around 1 to 1.1 grams of protein per kilogram body weight per day, but there are obviously other populations, other age groups, certain sexes, depending on how you slice the data, where it can go. Uh, much higher in general low protein intake in the united states is not something that we see very often on occasion you see some like protein malnutrition where people are not eating that much uh and so they're under the sort of recommended amount but in general broadly speaking um protein intake is quite high in the United States. Unfortunately, it's not usually from great sources. It's not like everybody's out there eating, uh, you know, a lot of lean protein, unprocessed proteins. It's mostly from like hamburgers and, and, and processed foods and stuff like that. But, uh, yeah, that data is as recent as, um, the NHANES data collected up to, I believe, 2018. Uh, Interestingly, the 2020 to 2025 dietary guidelines for Americans, they actually endorse uh, dietary patterns like the healthy vegetarian, healthy Mediterranean style, and healthy U.S. style eating patterns, um, which would, if followed, result in eating 1.5 times as much as the recommended uh, dietary allowance that uh, which is 0.8 uh if they ate the healthy vegetarian diet so a much higher protein intake for the healthy mediterranean style diet it's almost two t- two times the uh the rda and then for the healthy us style it is uh, even closer to two times the rda so it's pretty interesting that like this 0.8 grams of protein per kilogram body weight per day sort of recommendation even in the dietary guidelines for Americans, is like not really sort of pushed. Do you think, Austin, that the RDA has really any sort of real use in communicating like dietary pattern or
3: dietary sort of what people should eat in the population? I don't think that the vast majority of people out there pay attention to things like RDAs, to be honest, <laughs> and, and and I don't think that it's a – especially pragmatic way at communicating recommendations because it's just a numerical thing. And that's not the way that people think or select their diets in general, outside of our niche of, you know, psychos who (laughs) weigh and measure and track and stuff like that in the fitness world. But um, as for the rest, I don't, I don't think that that's, you know, a particularly useful or effective or pragmatic way on a population level to, to communicate this stuff.
2: Yeah, I agree. It's kind of like telling people to get 500 to 1000 met minutes of conditioning done per week. And they're like, wait, what's a met? <laughs> You're like, yeah, okay, well, maybe let's communicate this differently. Uh, and again, just for uh, a more complete um, sort of lay of the land here the current recommendations for like performance with respect to maximizing adaptations from exercise whether that be cardiovascular fitness improvements through endurance training whether it be muscle mass or strength improvements through resistance training is somewhere in that 1.4 to 1.6 grams of protein per kilogram body weight per day again that's total body weight and again to me the most interesting thing i learned in this whole like sort of podcast research thing was that the dietary guidelines for those three eating Uh, dietary patterns the healthy vegetarian healthy mediterranean style and healthy u.s style dietary patterns those would effectively give you that amount of protein per day not the 0.8 they're like yeah no do double that and you're like cool (laughs) let's just let's just do that so i think you know when you see the influencer on social media saying that the government doesn't want you to be strong and and conditioned because they're not they're not recommending this much protein it's like well in fact they actually they actually are not not that we need it because we just eat a bunch of protein anyway. So that's besides the point. We'll get into that more later. Maybe there might be a rant. We'll, we'll see what happens. Okay, let's get into uh, this section I titled When Protein Attacks. One of the first sort of organ systems that is commonly said to be harmed by high-protein diets is the kidneys. So the first premise here is that high-protein intakes increase the risk of kidney disease by forcing the kidney to deal with breakdown products of protein, particularly urea, which leads to hyperfiltration, which then leads to glomerular damage and eventual kidney damage and failure. Now we're going to cover what all those terms mean. Um, and if you're thinking back, like I feel like you guys have talked about this before, and we did on a research review. I've linked that in the description uh, below or the show notes, however you want to describe that, um, where we talk about the role of protein restriction in chronic kidney disease. But uh, so some of this will be a little bit of a review. Some of it will be newer information. So Austin. You see a lot of patients that come in the the hospital who have some sort of kidney dysfunction. Um, When you're talking to them and you're kind of like giving them an overview of the kidneys, how do you like describe kidney function? Like what do the kidneys do? Do you talk about that at all?
3: Yeah. I mean, the kidneys are what help us maintain homeostasis. That's not the way that I would explain it to a patient in terms of the the complicated terminology, but that's really what their function is. They're, they help to maintain homeostasis in all sorts of different ways, and you know the way that they do that is by filtering the blood, adjusting um, a, a variety of the components and concentrations in the urine as it, you know, is, is kind of formed and then excreting whatever that byproduct is. And they are really interesting organs. They can alter urine composition really quickly all throughout the day, depending on the the body's needs. And, and you have listener have experienced this. For example, if you, you know, go and you were to chug a whole bunch of water within an hour, you're going to go and you're going to pee really clear urine. Your kidney is dynamically adjusting to that intake because you probably ended up taking in maybe more water than you really need. Or if you spend most of your day not drinking water, you know what color your urine looks like by the end of the day. That's your kidney adjusting things in real time uh, to maintain your homeostasis um, uh, uh, not knowing when the next time you're going to be able to drink some water is, and so that's just one of many functions. The water handling, excretion, or retention, it alters the concentration of electrolytes in our body. It can even help to pr- you know produce um, various hormones that have a role in blood production, calcium uh, regulation. Um, it can even produce a little bit of glucose for us. There's tons of things that our kidneys do, but ultimately it just kind of helps us maintain a general state of homeostasis. And we see just how badly that goes wrong in patients who have advanced or end-stage kidney disease, you know, when, when patients are on usually hemodialysis or other forms of dialysis, uh, if you just go, if you happen to miss just a couple sessions of dialysis and we measure your blood work, things are going to look real wacky. And if you miss a week of dialysis or two weeks of dialysis, you're, you know, might die, uh, you know, in relatively short order uh, as a result of that. So um, they're, they're organs that a lot, that, we, that we really take for granted, but do a lot of important work for us.
2: Yeah. One of the cases I think it was first presented with in one of like those teaching rounds sort of situations, where they give you like labs and like a brief history. And and then they're like, okay, now what? I remember looking at the, the chemistry, the blood chemistry. And I was like, uh, yo, this thing is way off. (laughs) Sodium's crazy. Potassium's crazy. Calcium's crazy. What is going on? And then I'm like, I'm like, how is this person even alive? Anyway, it turned out that they had missed like multiple weeks of dialysis. And you're like, oh, Well, that makes sense. If the kidneys, those little beans in your abdomen, aren't uh, working correctly, a whole bunch of stuff can go wrong. Um, And so one of the ways that we sort of keep track of or monitor or otherwise uh, uh, test how the kidneys are functioning is called the glomerular filtration rate. So you can measure kidney function by measuring this glomerular filtration rate. It tells you how much uh, or how well the kidneys are working. And so decrements in the glomerular filtration rate largely correlate with reduction in other types of kidney functions it's usually measured indirectly from clearance of a particular marker like creatinine uh, for example you guys have heard about that or a cystatin c which is a different type of test but you can use that if you're unclear on like hey are the kidneys actually doing their job and so those those are probably the most common austin do you guys you know you probably get patients admitted from the emergency room with creatinine levels all over the map um are you sending cystatin c out to uh, while people are in the hospital
3: Occasionally. Yeah. And and I've, I've done that when I have reason to not trust the creatinine measurement, um, which is a whole topic in itself, but I do from time to time uh, use the statin C measurements in the hospital setting. Yeah. Yeah.
2: So in general, when you see an elevated creatinine level, what's your first sort of, you're like, does that tip you off, like, well, the kidneys may or may not be working as well as we think?
3: Yeah, typically, it's uh, the, the, the general assumption and the types of patients that I would see day-to-day is that the kidneys are not working as well as uh, they should. And the question is, is that happening suddenly now for something new that's going on, or do they have chronic kidney disease? And this is kind of where their routine long-term level is at as a result of their chronic kidney disease. And then the least likely possibility is that this patient is super jacked and they have great kidney function, which is the, the least likely thing that I see day-to-day. But the other two are far more likely. Yeah, in general so again the glomerular filtration rate
2: is something that we can monitor via tests on uh, with blood tests and so with respect to protein intake what happens when we eat a high higher protein diet the first sort of thing that happens with respect to the kidneys is what's known as hyperfiltration and so what is hyperfiltration so effectively greater amino acid delivery all proteins are made up of Amino acids, and as protein gets broken down in the digestive system, it's absorbed as amino acids, and those amino acids end up in the bloodstream. They're delivered to the kidney, and in particular, the kidney's functional unit, which is called the glomerulus. So that's keying you in on glomerular filtration rate. The glomerulus is just a tuft of capillaries involved in filtering the blood, and uh, it looks like via nitric oxide and a few other um, sort of uh, sort of metabolites that the artery serving that capillary it's a small artery so it's called an arterial actually dilates gets bigger and so effectively you have more blood rushing into the capillary so more stuff's getting filtered more blood's getting filtered and we call this hyperfiltration Uh, on the other side if you have a low protein diet low amounts of amino acids in the blood system you actually don't get that dilation of that arterial that small artery and so you get the opposite of hyperfiltration. You get hypofiltration. Uh, and so it's thought that this hyperfiltration sort of mechanism is like the first thing that happens in a myriad of different sort of kidney diseases. That's like the first thing that, that happens. And so that's why, in general, for kidney disease, uh, low protein diets are recommended. Um, the capacity to increase glomerular filtration rate uh, in response to protein feeding is known as the kidney functional reserve and it's a normal adaptive function of the kidney to increase solute clearance in response to an increase in solute load in this case nitrogen from protein importantly this is an adaptive response and does not represent a risk factor for the development of uh, chronic kidney disease at least that's how we understand it in fact there are conditions that are not necessarily harmful to the kidney that result in uh, hyperfiltration uh, sustained for many many months like pregnancy for example Um, so that's what happens first with an increase in dietary protein, you get this hyperfiltration. And so some nephrologists, some kidney specialists, some researchers that are heavily involved in sort of uh, you know kidney function and health, they're like, well, look, if high protein diets increase filtration, you get hyperfiltration. Mightn't that cause an increase in chronic kidney disease? Well, let's look at some data here. So, with respect to those with normal kidney function, so those without chronic kidney disease, like known kidney disease, um, there's no real evidence linking a high-protein diet to development of kidney disease. In fact, the most recent meta-analysis of 28 randomized controlled trials in 1,300 subjects, age 23 to 72, with BMIs ranging from 21 to 36, uh, and the study's lengths, uh, range from four days to 104 weeks, so up to two years. Uh, and the high protein diet in these studies averaged about 1.8 grams of protein per kilogram body weight per day, whereas the normal protein intake was 0. 0.93 grams of protein per kilogram body weight per day. There was basically no effect on glomerular filtration rate when comparing where their GFR was to begin with to what it was after the study. And this was actually a unique meta analysis because most of the previous meta analyses, which is just a study of studies, Uh, actually just looked at what happened after the protein intake went up. They just look at the post-intervention GFR, not like, well, where did they start at and where did it go? Which actually seems like kind of like a bad study design because what you would want to know is, does increasing dietary protein increase GFR? We think we get this hyperfiltration. And so, like, if people are exposed to a high-protein diet, does their GFR go up? You think you'd want to know, like, where it started and then, like, did it go up? And if so, by how much? But Again, when you actually study, uh, look at studies that include both a pre-intervention and post-intervention GFR, doesn't look like in those with healthy kidneys that a high-protein diet does much of anything. Overall, there's just kind of a trivial or non-existent effect of a high-protein diet on glomerular filtration rate. Uh, again, in individuals with normal uh, kidney function. And these findings are in line with statements from the World Health Organization, the Institute of Medicine, on protein intake and kidney function. Effectively, there aren't government agencies or health agencies out there that are like, watch your protein intake because your kidneys might get pickled, which is a medical term for EFT, I think. Is, that's, that's how this works. Um, Austin, when you see patients uh, in the hospital with a uh, high creatinine indicative of their kidney function being potentially compromised, how often are you asking them about protein intake never (laughs) <laughs> Just to be clear,
3: he says yeah, never. Yeah, I mean the context that I'm in is is admittedly a little bit different because I'm dealing with more short term issues in the hospital setting when patients are sick. But at the same time, most of these people that I'm seeing are you know not doing a ton of training. They're not super jacked. They actually tend to be more on the frail side with multiple medical conditions, which could actually stand to benefit from probably some some better nutrition, some uh, some increasing protein, and some and some physical activity. And ultimately, I'm viewing all of it as a trade off in terms of what are the things that matter most to the person because people don't actually care about their glomerular filtration rate when they're living day to day, right? What they care about is, am I going to live and feel okay and be okay? Or am I going to end up needing dialysis? And so if I have somebody with chronic kidney disease, who's like, you know, 88 years old, but is not progressing at a speed that is quickly enough to le- land them on dialysis then I am not particularly concerned even if they did consume a bit of a <laughs> protein diet uh, a high protein diet and it did have some impact if they're going le- if they're likely going to die of something else before they were to, it, to ever land on dialysis then they're not going to know the difference and they may stand to benefit more in other ways from improving their functional status and being able to live their life and walk and be independent and, and hang out with their you know uh, families and things like that so there's a lot of trade-offs to consider but I'm dealing more in the short term when I'm seeing folks in the hospital and less, less often am I, you know, managing a, a kind of longer term chronic kidney disease outside of more of a primary care synopsis, uh, standpoint.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So uh, that leads to a nice segue into like, what about high protein diets and those with existing chronic kidney disease? So Austin, just can you give a, uh, an overview of like, what is chronic kidney disease?
3: Yeah. So instead of, you know, a sudden change in how well your kidneys are functioning, chronic kidney disease is just a slow, long-term decline in kidney function. And so there are various things that we look at to diagnose that and stratify and determine how bad it is and and things like that. But ultimately, a, a simplified explanation, um, is that filtration rate that you talked about earlier, a gradual decline in that filtration rate over time. And as that filtration rate goes down, as you mentioned, it tends to correlate with declines in various other kidney functions as well. Um, Some of the other things that the kidneys do for you, and that can lead to various consequences as homeostasis gets thrown off in multiple different ways. People can develop problems with how much fluid they have in their body, their calcium regulation, they can get anemic, lots of different things can happen as, you know, those functions of the kidney gradually kind of fail um, over time.
2: Yeah, in addition to like electrolyte abnormalities, the the risk of progression of kidney failure is also, you know, something we worry about and further like a correlation to cardiovascular disease risk, risk of uh, uh, infection, uh, and just overall increased mortality. So, it's not that we're like, you know, saying, hey, CKD or chronic kidney disease isn't a bad thing, but we're definitely not saying that it's more so it's not just about the glomerular filtration rate but like what else the kidney is doing and if that's impaired and to what extent it is impaired so the current recommendations for protein intake from the kidney disease quality outcomes initiative state that in adults with chronic kidney disease stages three to five and so there's five stages and so stages three to five are considered more severe uh, but in adults with chronic kidney disease stages three to five who are metabolically stable they recommend protein restriction to reduce risk for end-stage kidney disease and improve quality of life and they describe this uh, either a low protein diet as taken in 0.55 to 0.6 grams of protein per kilogram body weight per day or a very low protein intake uh which is 0.28 to 0.43 grams of protein per kilogram body weight per day which is uh below the rda and then if you compare that to like the average protein intake in the united states it's less than half in general, which kind of ties into how hard this actually is for most people to do. You think about telling somebody, hey, you need to eat less protein. They're like, okay, doc, well, what does my actual diet look like? And then you kind of lay it out for them. and You're like, uh, what? Hmm. Because it's not just like sort of animal sources of protein or dairy sources of protein, effectively all foods that have protein in them, you're kind of like looking at, well, how much protein's in this dang thing? And so the actual dietary pattern becomes very difficult to adhere to at baseline. So when you look at studies where they do protein restriction for chronic kidney disease, the attrition rate or the dropout rate is very high in general because people have a tough time adhering to this. So the question naturally becomes, is there a benefit to actually doing protein restriction? And so before we get into that, the actual risk of progression from chronic kidney disease stage three to further or like needing dialysis, the lifetime risk of those individuals for kidney failure in a middle-aged person is 8% for men and 3% for women. Uh, And so, patients are going to need to maintain this like low protein or very low protein diet for a relatively small benefit and effectively small risk reduction for the majority of those folks. So already you're like, "Eh, is it worth it? Like in a Missy Elliott thing, is it worth it? Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) And so then you're like, all right, well, where did this like low protein diet or very low protein diet recommendation even come from? Is the data like rock solid? Because if so, and you were like, I need to maximize my longevity, like what would you do? The majority of the data Where this initiative came from and this initiative was published in 2020 uh was before like a long time ago was well before we had certain medications like uh, like the renin angiotensin system uh blockade uh sgl2 inhibitors etc in fact one of the main studies that you know they're hanging their hat on is from 1991 and if you think about how long ago that was compared to like the medical advancements that have happened in the interim you're like well how can this how can this be how can this initiative be
3: yeah over overwhelmingly, you know, standard standard care for people to be on the... And many of these are, you know, uh, lots of our listeners are probably on some of these just for blood pressure, but they're also useful to reduce the risk of kidney disease progression. The SGLT2 inhibitors, you mentioned many of those are also used to manage diabetes, but have benefit for reducing the rate of uh, kidney disease progression. Even some new data looking at GLP-1 receptor agonists, which we've talked about a lot on this podcast in the context of obesity also having benefit for reducing the risk of heart disease complications as well as kidney disease complications there's there's now just a host host of medicines that um, I think probably have uh, at least as much more likely to be a greater benefit for um, improving kidney related outcomes with um, fewer downsides from uh, potentially like malnourishing an already frail sick person who has chronic kidney disease
2: yeah. Yeah. Overall, I am not impressed with the previous data used to support this recommendation. And it looks like, you know, when you look at actual mortality, your kidney sort of what they call kidney death, like, oh, do they actually need either uh, dialysis or like a kidney transplant or whatever. uh, In general, it's just not that supportive uh, for following a low protein diet compared to an elevate, you know, a high protein diet or a moderate protein diet. But there are some caveats here so first there's no real consensus on what is a high protein diet versus what is a moderate protein diet or low protein diet in general most studies will talk about the rda that 0.8 sort of recommendation and if you're above that they call that high if you're at that it's called moderate and if you're below that they call it low but again when you think about what most americans are eating most americans then would be eating a high protein diet and there's also confounding factors So what does the total dietary pattern look like versus just the protein intake? Where are people getting the protein from? Do they have other medical conditions that are contributing to advancement of chronic kidney disease or kidney disease risk in general? So a lot of other things like going on under the hood, it's really just difficult to say, ah, it's just the protein. Austin, when you see chronic kidney disease, there's people in the pa- in the hospital. And so you're like, is this a new problem or an existing problem? If it's an existing problem, it should probably be handled outside the hospital. If it's a new problem, okay, we can deal with that here. But again, you're just not really talking about protein intake. That's more reserved for outpatient setting. Yep, correct. Yeah. Yeah. So in in general, though, overall, taking all of the totality of the evidence into consideration for healthy individuals, I don't see a real connection between high protein diets and reduced kidney function, uh, though those caveats do apply as far as like defining what a high protein diet is and the comparing and contrasting dietary pattern versus total protein intake and then uh, with respect to those with chronic kidney disease i think the trials used to justify the kidney disease quality outcomes uh, initiative guidelines do not support that a low protein diet lowers the risk of end-stage kidney disease or slows the progression of kidney disease down unless one relies on just isolated subgroups and ignores the totality of the evidence and that was effectively the conclusion of the most recent sort of interpretation of these guidelines uh, that was published in 2022 And finally, even if they were like heads and shoulders better, it's so hard to stay on these diets because, again, most people don't find a suitable dietary pattern that reduces protein to that level. And in this modern age of medical advancements and different medications we have and, and therapeutics, I don't know, I just don't see a big benefit for reducing protein intake with respect to kidney disease risk.
3: Yeah, it's just not the first lever that I would even go to in the vast majority. I'd be, you know, really targeting as much as I could, whatever the underlying cause of somebody's chronic kidney disease is. A lot of times the most common in the US is going to be diabetes. So getting better control of their diabetes is probably going to be a a, a much more important thing. And if somebody prefers to consume protein in order to better control their diabetes, and that's how we get their diabetes under well enough control that their chronic kidney disease progression slows down, I'm actually net okay with that in the vast majority of situations much. And then on the other hand, much more rapidly progressive, you know, forms of kidney related decline are probably going to be happening regardless of what your protein intake is. Cause you have a much more severe condition going on. So just complicated stuff. Yeah.
2: Plus you think about quality of life function, you know, with respect to like, and muscle mass and, and things of that nature. And you're like, eh, there's, there's some trade off to be uh, viewed here. But overall, when I think about kidney disease and, and protein in the diet, I'm like, if the dietary pattern is health promoting in general, I'm not really concerned what the protein intake is, with respect to kidney disease. That's the best I can make of the available data. And I think there's enough data to kind of support that that claim until proven otherwise. this podcast is brought to you by pioneer belts at pioneer belts they have belts for all applications if you're interested on how belts work or how to choose a belt check out our podcast episode number 219 most people will do best with a four inch wide belt that's 10 millimeters thick either single prong or lever depending on the fastening mechanism that you prefer pioneer has industry exclusive micro adjustments on their lever belts for ease of use without tools they also make custom belts to your specs depending on what you want Trusted by some of the world's strongest athletes, choose Pioneer for your weightlifting belts and accessories. Head to GeneralLeatherCraft.com and tell them Barbell Medicine sent you. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. After going to the gym, what's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? For me, I'd probably do some more reading or get outside of nature. Maybe both. Whether we're talking about training, a dietary change, or just life, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you. Therapy can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it. Of course, therapy isn't a single thing per se, but working with a licensed therapist may be helpful for many folks to learn positive coping skills, how to set boundaries, and overall empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suit you, the individual. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com barbellpod today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. dot slash BarbellPod for ten percent off your first month Uh, the second premise with respect to kidney disease and protein intake is that high protein intake increases urinary calcium loss and increased acid load in the body, which is countered by calcium release from the bones, thereby causing bone loss, so osteoporosis, and due to the increase in calcium getting into the urine, kidney stones. So we're going to talk about the effect of high protein diet on the risk for osteoporosis and kidney stones. So let's back up and talk about how does a high protein intake affect calcium Uh, increasing dietary protein overall increases urinary calcium there's been a number of studies looking at this and effectively for every 50 gram increase in dietary protein there's a substantial increase in 24 hour urinary calcium excretion and if the additional calcium loss in the urine was entirely from bone uh, that would result in a one to two percent annual loss of skeletal mass in adult women, which is comparable to the rate of bone loss in early menopause and so you're like oh Well, there's a mechanism here. And if you just stop there, you'd be like, I don't know if a high protein diet is good for preserving bone mineral density. And second, I'm worried about all that calcium. Like it's got to go somewhere. Could it form a kidney stone, for example? So let's let's talk about what else happens. Originally, there was this thought that if you increase dietary protein, sure, you're going to lose some additional calcium in the urine, but maybe there's some compensatory adaptations, like increased intestinal calcium absorption, to sort of counter that. Historical data was pretty uh, equivocal on this, so didn't really tell you if it was if intestinal calcium absorption was going up or going down. Um, recently, some new advanced techniques using like radio tracer isotopes basically they put a label on what calcium is doing so they can track it around the body uh was thought hey man this is really going to clear this up but still even modern data doesn't really give us a clear answer some studies show yep you get an increase in intestinal intestinal calcium absorption other studies show no real difference but it seems like overall there's likely some effect on intestinal calcium absorption we just aren't sure like which direction that is and so still at this point we're like dang that calcium loss i'm kind of worried about it so now we got to transition to what about body-wide calcium levels do body-wide calcium levels actually change with respect to dietary protein and so calcium balance is defined as calcium intake minus the sum of urinary and fecal calcium excretions uh there's a large consensus over the increase in urinary calcium excretion with increased dietary protein but the effects of high protein diets on whole bio- on whole body calcium levels are not as clear mainly because it's really hard to measure total body calcium first off fecal calcium losses need to be measured over over like a 5 to 10 day period to be representative of the diet and practical <laughs> totally like no one's going to do that you're going to get that the lab is going to be like oh we lost it we lost the sample <laughs> imagine a 10 day sort of stool collection but interestingly fecal calcium losses are up to 10 times higher than urinary calcium losses so if you estimate it Or just you know don't have accurate data that can really skew uh uh, the calcium sort of levels in the body uh, and and skew your interpretation in addition dietary factors such as calcium and phosphorus intakes also modulate calcium balance so for example at high levels of protein intake an increase in dietary phosphorus intake causes the calcium balance to change from negative to positive Um, the effects are of particular importance because an increase in protein intake from ordinary food is generally accompanied by an increase in phosphorus intake. Meat and dairy products are pretty rich in phosphorus, which may explain why smaller changes in calcium balance are usually observed in studies in which high protein intakes uh, consist of high meat or high dairy products instead of just purified proteins like whey, casein, stuff like that. But overall, it doesn't look like a higher protein diet reliably affects blood calcium levels or total body calcium levels, Uh, although again, measurement is an issue here. So the final sort of thing before we get into like the actual clinical outcomes is this sort of idea about this acid load. Um, so does the acid load actually increase with respect to dietary protein intake and does this play a role in calcium levels? Um, this whole premise comes from the fact that meat and fish are high in sulfur-containing amino acids and they generate uh, higher levels of acid, uh, basically as proteins metabolized. Uh, you generate more acid whereas if you consume a bunch of fruits and vegetables there's generally generally little acid that's formed and this may under certain certain circumstances generate uh more base than acid if you eat more fruits and vegetables for example normally the kidneys deal with the acid load or the base load depending on what you're eating but it is thought that if this is incomplete due to reduced kidney function or some other cause, like aging, for example. Kidney sort of function tends to decline with aging. The skeleton may be caused called upon to act as a buffer to neutralize this acid, which is generated from high-protein diets. And in order to neutralize it, you basically break down some bone. You release some bicarbonate ions, which are involved in the bony matrix. And those are released into the blood to act as a buffer therefore the liberation of the buffer from the bone comes at the expense of bone loss and so you would think well dang it maybe this acid load is causing bone loss and so osteoporosis would be a risk so let's look at that Uh, as of this recording there's no convincing experimental data to support this theory Uh, a 2018 summary of systematic reviews and meta-analyses so effectively all of the meta-analyses and systematic reviews that have been published up until that point uh addressed the benefits and risks of dietary protein intake for bone health in adults and it suggested that dietary protein levels even above the current rda may be beneficial in reducing bone loss and hip fracture risk provided that calcium intakes are also adequate so effectively there was no evidence that uh, the diet-derived acid load is deleterious for bone health, um, but insufficient de- dietary protein intake may be a more severe problem than protein excess, particularly in the elderly. Interestingly, there's been no randomized controlled trials to effect, uh, to uh, investigate the effect of dietary protein on fracture risk, irrespective of the fracture risk. So these are all prospective trials. Effectively, they look at two groups of people and, and those eating a higher protein diet versus those eating a moderate or lower protein diet and see, well, hey, do they have an increased fracture risk or not uh, there seems to be a beneficial effect with respect to fracture risk uh, particularly at the hip uh, and so when you look at the most recent meta-analysis on this there were 14 studies that showed a reduced risk five studies that showed no effect and three studies actually did show uh, an increase uh, sort of fracture risk but when you take all these data together it looks like there's a slight reduction in fracture risk particularly at the hip maybe up to 15 percent which kind of makes sense to me when you think about uh, non randomized controlled trials you 're basically just looking at two different groups of people and how they do over time due to innate differences and you think about the people who are eating more protein, um, what their dietary pattern probably looks like uh, compared to those who are eating lower amounts of protein. If most Americans are eating a high amount of dietary protein, those who are eating a low amount of dietary protein i 'm like, are they sick? Are they inactive is there, what is their dietary pattern overall look like trash? I mean this is exactly what I would expect and i 'm not so much focusing on the protein intake I 'm more just thinking about like what is their total life kind of look like and that's it's no surprise to me that in general the effects on fracture risk are like eh not particularly impressive but there doesn't appear to be an adverse effect
3: yeah i mean i think that the big picture mechanism that you're getting at here in terms of like an idea of a chronic acid type state chronic acidosis having impacts on bone you know structure you know uh, and quality and stuff like that is a thing However, the context that I worry about it in is what you mentioned earlier. It's not so much the dietary protein intake, but when the kidney function is declining, the person's not able to clear the acid load that they would normally have. And so in people, as their kidney function gets worse and worse in much more advanced states of kidney disease, they can develop this acidosis that's there all the time and that can get treated, you know, for, for, for various other outcomes to improve their, you know, bone health and things like that. But the, the, the idea that... A, in somebody with healthy kidney function would cause bone wasting by eating protein is, I agree, not super supported. And then we've already talked about how in the context of advanced kidney disease, we have other ways to manage that um kind of acid type state so that we don't need to worry as much about the acid generated from um the diet i will say however that it's still recommended for them to eat a generally healthy dietary pattern including plenty of those those foods that tend to skew it in the other direction anyway Um, and so that's kind of where i end up coming out on this
2: yeah yeah then finally what about osteoporosis then again the operational definition of osteoporosis is based that the bone mineral density uh, is an important uh, determinant of bone strength. And so if that declines past a certain point, you have an increase in fracture risk. And already we've basically covered that the fracture risk from dietary, you know, a high level of dietary protein is non-existent. So what about osteoporosis? And maybe does it put people at a higher risk of fracture risk, for example, or other sort of unwanted effects from having low bone mineral density? Um, the association between bone mineral density and dietary protein has been investigated in three recent systematic reviews and meta-analyses. And all three of them, showed the exact same thing they didn't use the same studies um but they all showed sort of the same uh relationship basically that if there's any relationship between dietary protein and bone mineral density it's slightly positive and if they found any other sort of uh, relationship it was not significant none of the studies showed that increasing dietary protein actually reduced bone mineral density significantly um the most interesting sort of subgroup analysis uh, was from the most recent meta-analysis. It showed that in three randomized control trials that assessed protein supplements on lumbar spine bone mineral density, there was an improvement in bone mineral density with protein intakes up to 163% of the RDA for 26 weeks. And so it's like these people were taking whey protein or something like that at a pretty high dose, you know, for a half a year. And it's like, oh yeah, their bone mineral density actually improved. Um, And it's like, I don't know that i would be recommending whey protein as like a to reduce the risk of osteoporosis but i do think that again if you have folks who are able to make dietary pattern changes who are motivated to do that i also expect that they're willing to do other things like exercise for example take a medication that reduces bone loss or potentially even increases bone mineral density does that seem like a reasonable take to you totally yeah yeah i agree So, in summary, with respect to the kidney and all of its related functions, although a high-protein diet is associated with increased urinary calcium excretion, which may be related to higher intestinal calcium absorption, uh, higher protein intakes, whatever their origin, whether it's from animal or vegetable sources. Do not appear to contribute to the development of osteoporosis or to increase fracture risk. With intakes above the recommended uh, dietary allowance, dietary protein is rather beneficial in reducing bone loss and fracture risk if there's any relationship found, especially at the hip, provided that, again, calcium intakes are adequate. Uh, insufficient dietary protein intakes may be much more of a problem than protein excess. And I think, again, that comes back to the dietary pattern. Like if your dietary pattern is low in protein, I'm kind of like, well, what else is it low in? That seems to be a more Significant risk, I think, than excess protein. Final thing to do with the beans, the beans in your abdomen, the kidneys. This is thought that increased dietary protein is gonna give you kidney stones. The premise here is that increased urinary calcium loss through the kidneys due to high protein intakes, which we know to be true, and that's there's consensus on that. Well, all that extra calcium's got to go somewhere, it's gonna form kidney stones. So, first off, like what are kidney stones? Uh, kidney stones are called nephrolithiasis. It's a common problem in primary care. Uh, patients may may present with classic symptoms or uh, uh, classic symptoms of. Vague abdominal or flank pain, nausea, difficulty, and/or frequent urination, and even blood in the urine. Sometimes, these are a common problem. Uh, estimated that 19% of males and 9% of females will be diagnosed with a kidney stone by the age of 70. And in general, the majority of stones, 80% of stones, uh, are calcium stones, most of which are uh, composed primarily of calcium oxalate. Less often, they're calcium phosphate or uric acid. There are several other types, and patients can actually have more than one type of stone. But as far as how they form, there are different theories and of how they form and different stones may have like different sort of pathogenesis into forming. Um, but in general, stone formation occurs when a normal, normally soluble material like calcium is present in high amounts in the urine and forms crystals. Not like the water crystal structure we talked about during Blackwatch. backwatch. <laughs> Not that back. made up nonsense, but real it, stuff. But <laughs> a real crystal structure. And if this happens significantly, you can get a stone that either obstructs uh, flow of the passage of urine, can cause pain, can actually cause damage wherever that stone gets stuck, uh, for example
3: if i can i can i interrupt for one thing because if people have never seen this it is something that you should probably see because it's fascinating and if you wonder why kidney stones hurt so much as they pass down your urinary tract go to google images and search electron micrograph kidney stone and the images that you see of what kidney stones look like under like you know high intensity magnification of an electron micrograph it is uh, terrifying to think about that going going down your urinary tract and out that way and that's why it can lead to bleeding and pain and obstruction and uh can can lead to consequent infections and various other complications but really interesting photos to see
2: yeah uh i would zero out of ten not recommend <laughs> that if you're at all squeamish or uh yeah know somebody close to you who's had a kidney stone you're good on that you just don't need to search (laughs) that Um, okay so the question then is do high protein diets actually increase the risk of kidney stones again the proposed mechanism here is that if you're losing more calcium well you're not losing more calcium but you have more calcium in the urine um, and then maybe with this again acid load maybe that's a good environment for this kidney stone to form and so you know that is a mechanism, and if you just stop right there, you could make the inference. You're like, oh, look, maybe a high-protein diet increases kidney stones. But then you have to go to the outcome data and actually look at, well, do high-protein diets actually result in an increased reliable risk of uh, kidney stones? So the association between the amount of dietary protein intake and the risk of kidney stones has been overall inconsistent in the data, but the most recent meta-analysis, which includes 14 studies, In multiple countries, over 1.6 million subjects and over 30,000 cases of kidney stones were recently uh, analyzed. They used a food frequency questionnaire, which isn't like the best way to analyze dietary protein intake, but a study this big, that's kind of what you got. And most studies controlled for the conventional risk factors like age, BMI, calcium supplementation, et cetera. The results of this large meta-analysis, total protein was not associated with kidney stone risk. I'll say that again. Total protein intake was not associated with kidney stone risk. Non-dairy animal protein had a slight increased risk of kidney stone formation, about 11% uh, increase in risk. Uh, But there was no association with increased protein from poultry or fish, for example. And that was published in 2022. That's the most recent meta-analysis on the subject. One of the more interesting studies that was just published a few months ago, it was a prospective study that included 411 patients with their first episode of a symptomatic kidney stone. Because I'll, oh, by the way, you can have kidney stones that you don't even know about because they're asymptomatic. You just totally. don't know. Very common. Yep. Yeah. Yep. But uh, so this is a prospective study of 411 patients with their first episode of symptomatic kidney stones uh, with obstruction confirmed by imaging or stone passage along with 384 stone free controls. Both groups completed an electronic food frequency questionnaire. Basically, it's just a survey, like how often do you eat these foods? How much of these foods do you normally eat? Um, Dietary risk factors were compared between groups, and the dietary risk factors for the first kidney stone, so the initial kidney stone these folks had, included lower levels of calcium, lower levels of potassium, lower levels of caffeine, and lower levels of phytate, which is an antioxidant compound found in whole grains. So just lower intake of whole grains, nuts, and other foods, and low fluid intake, less than 3.4 liters per day, which is just under a gallon of water per day. Recurrent uh, symptomatic kidney stones were found in 73 patients. It's 18% uh, during the median follow-up of four years. The predictors of symptomatic kidney stone recurrence included lower dietary intake of calcium lower potassium intake which is from fruits and vegetables most of the time uh, in an analysis that adjusted for body mass index fluid intake and energy intake other variables such as animal protein phytate oxalate sodium and fiber intake were not significant predictors of recurrent kidney stones in this study Which i thought was just interesting because again what you would think if dietary protein intake particularly from animal protein had this unique reliable robust risk for generating kidney stones and these people already had one then you'd on recurrence you'd be like dang protein intake was was definitely correlated but that's not what they found
3: yeah I think that this is an area that I've gotten a lot of questions about from from patients and even family members and things like that who've experienced these. And there are all sorts of dietary recommendations that are given to patients who experience a kidney stone. And what I found is that a lot of them are not super well supported. (laughs) And it, it is just to point out the interesting kind of seeming paradox of what you described earlier is that most kidney stones are calcium based. And a lot of times people will say, oh, well, if it's calcium-based stone, I should just decrease the amount of calcium that I take in, be it from dairy, yogurt, milk, cheese, whatever the case is. And that actually seems to increase the risk and actually higher uh, calcium intakes within reason, um, not to like, you know, insane elevated levels of like calcium supplementation, but increasing dietary calcium intake seems to be beneficial here, which is something that I actually do end up tending to recommend for these patients, as well as other things that are more well-supported. For example, increasing intake of, uh, you know, citrate intake and other things that can help to solubilize or dissolve some of these stones or pr- mitigate their risk of, of forming but a lot of the dietary recommendations um, don't really end up tending to to pan out in a lot of situations for the for these unfortunately
2: yeah and, and probably one of the most interesting things I found with respect to kidney stones is that the not only is protein not really associated with kidney stone risk but dietary pattern is, with very different sort of protein intakes both seem to reduce the risk so for example the dash diet uh, is a relatively low protein diet. It's just right around the RDA at 0.8. That lowers the sort of risk of kidney stone by up to 40%. But also the Mediterranean diet, which is more moderate or even high protein, depending on how people do it, also lowers the risk of getting a kidney stone by about the same amount. And so you're like, is it the protein? It's, nah, I think it's probably more the dietary pattern. And so if I had to make a recommendation for the overall dietary pattern, you would limit processed meat particularly processed red meat. Um, and then you would probably also increase consumption of just like you said, citrate, uh, dairy sources of protein, for example, uh, poultry, fish, if you're uh, you know, eating an omnivorous dietary pattern. Um, but again, most of these studies that, uh, that we have on this are from Western countries. So like if you don't live in a Westernized country, uh, I don't know that these recommendations still hold, uh, but rather than avoiding protein, we would probably recommend just again, reducing processed meat intake, increasing protein intake from dairy and vegetable sources and consuming more high potassium foods like fruits and vegetables. That would be the sort of general recommendation, which sounds an awfully, an awful lot like our general dietary pattern recommendations. So it's like, ki- you know, kidney stone diet. What do it's like, it looks pretty much the same as our normal yeah. health promoting dietary pattern. Agree. All right. So we're done with the bean organs. We've, we've discussed that high-protein diets don't necessarily increase uh, risk of kidney disease and either those with healthy kidney function or chronic kidney disease. We discussed that osteoporosis or fracture risk does not go up with high-protein diets. We also discussed that total protein is not really related to kidney stone risk. Now let's talk about the liver. And this is a more, well, I would say, specious or tenuous claim because I, I don't, when I see people make this claim like, oh, the protein's got to damage the liver. I'm like, how much biology have you had? And like, in, in what particular organism were, are you a, a biology expert? Because this doesn't make much sense, but hey, we're here. Let's talk about it anyway. The premise here is that protein increases ammonia production needs. So effectively, all protein, whether it's from dietary source or whether it's from an organ tissue or whatever, when it's metabolized, it turns into ammonium, ammonia, uh, which if you uh, do that too much, the idea would be that it could overwhelm the liver and damage it. And then also the high levels of ammonia uh, could be
3: harmful to the rest of the body
2: too. So there's got to be something.
3: It's got to be something here, right? It's, just, it's kind of interesting just to listen to these kind of things because you hear it a lot in terms of like, oh, that puts a lot of stress on your liver. You'll hear that or stress on your kidneys, but you don't necessarily hear like people say, well, you shouldn't exercise because it puts stress on your heart or you shouldn't think too hard because it puts stress on your brain brain. yeah or (laughs) it's like people just pick and choose these things just because they like sound good you wouldn't want to put too much stress on this thing it's like wouldn't i that's literally its job (laughs) yeah maybe (laughs)
2: enough stress to make it like stronger better more resilient anyway all right let's 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 talk about this so when protein is metabolized whether from dietary sources or body tissue we produce ammonia Uh, a small proportion is reutilized for biosynthesis of body protein and other essential compounds the rest is waste and has to be disposed of effectively eventually most ammonia is excreted in the urine as urea with a smaller amount as ammonia if this process becomes impaired ammonia accumulation may lead to consequences for brain function one of the worst scenarios you can see is in newborn infants that have like inherited defects of urea metabolism the newborns become flooded with ammonia within days of birth and develop a rapidly progressive brain disease, encephalopathy, which can cause severe neurologic deficits and may become fatal if left unattended. Austin, you probably see high levels of ammonia in patients all the time. We'll talk about that here in a second. But it's most commonly uh, related to cirrhotic liver disease in adults. So you get this hyperammonemia in adults. And again, 90% of this is due to like cirrhotic liver disease. Austin when you see this in patients in the hospital like how do they normally turn up and like what's your sort of tell like dang this person's got liver problems.
3: Yeah, when when this does happen it tends to manifest in a generally kind of delirious, somewhat sleepy, sedated uh, borderline comatose or sometimes outright comatose state. Um I would say that 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 that's probably the general description. It, but patients can come in in all sorts of ways, and families usually observe their you know the the patient acting a little bit differently or being you know awake at night and asleep during the day and just behaving in ways that, that don't make a ton of sense. But as it progresses and get worse, gets worse, it tends to be generally like a more uh, sleepy, sedated type as it trends towards um, towards coma. Um, that's probably the most common way that I would see this manifest. yeah.
2: Yeah. And so when you're, you know, you're not getting an ammonia level on people in like a, like if you're practicing primary care in the outpatient setting, in general, you're not measuring ammonia on these, on these folks. So are you getting like blood levels of ammonia on these patients when they walk through the door?
3: Yeah, this is something that, you know, has changed a bit over the years. I think when we were going through school, people were measuring ammonia levels a lot more often, even in patients who have cirrhosis. Um, But we've, it's, it's been found that the blood levels don't really correlate that well with what you see in front of you in terms of the patient. But if you see the classic syndrome, then you, then you treat it as such. And so I actually don't measure ammonia very often at all anymore. Um... It used to be measured all the time in patients with cirrhosis, but I basically don't do that ever anymore. The main place, the main times when I would measure an ammonia level is if I'm worried about somebody being in or progressing towards acute liver failure um, or in situations where I suspect there is a non-cirrhosis related reason why they could have hyperammonemia or have a high blood ammonia level. There are a handful of those. Certain medicines uh, can cause this. Um, certain infections can cause this. And then there's some rare syndromes like after, you know, in transplant patients or after getting bariatric or metabolic surgery that can lead to high blood ammonia levels. And it can manifest in similar ways in terms of the confusion and sleepiness and things like that. But I actually don't measure the levels in cirrhosis, even though that's the most common way, place where I would see this kind of phenomenon happen.
2: You know, a lot of discussion about ammonia levels in people who are not in the hospital for something that you don't really measure even when they're in the hospital. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) So let's talk about how protein intake relates to ammonia levels. When amino acids are consumed at a faster rate than they are used for protein synthesis, they are metabolized as an energy source, typically accounting for about 15 to 20% of the energy supply. The liver breaks down nearly half of the amino acids in the human diet as substrates for gluconeogenesis, basically just means forming new glucose, new sugar. Um, Amino acid breakdown ends up producing ammonia. About 12.5% of this is excreted through the digestive tract, and the rest is from urine. Uh, excreted in urine because protein is broken down into ammonia we predict that blood ammonia levels should rise with the consumption of a high protein diet that's what you would expect like more dietary protein for example should get more ammonia we should be able to see that surprisingly there's not many studies in the literature examining this at all basically people eating a high protein diet like what happens to their blood ammonia levels like do they go up and if so by how much like is it to a dangerous level And, and but just from like a first principle sort of thing If this was a real problem, people after like a, you know, a steak a big steak or high protein load meal or whatever would become frankly like obtunded and encephalopathic you know if their blood ammonia levels rose significantly yeah food
3: coma would be like an actual coma not like when people just say i don't want to do anything but they're like delirious and sleepy (laughs) yeah so not not
2: a lot of studies on this Uh, there are some one was in like huntington's disease patients that got whey protein some they ate like a high protein test meal and they tested their breath levels of ammonia which is not terribly well Correlated to blood levels of ammonia, but there's only there's less than a handful of studies actually investigating this um, directly. Just blood ammonia levels uh, in general. Interestingly, though, all of those studies, while the blood levels of ammonia kind of went up a little bit, none of them were elevated outside the normal range because all of these patients had normal liver function. So, with a normal, intact liver, you're not going to get this rise in ammonia. Uh, but and the other thing, though, so you're thinking about well, what about patients with liver disease? They should be on a protein restricted diet, right? And you're like, well, their protein requirements actually goes up. They're in this sort of hypermetabolic state, hyper catabolic state, which is a fancy way of saying, yo, they're breaking down a bunch of protein, they're using a bunch of protein. And so when it comes to patients with liver disease, what do you think about with respect to dietary protein, Austin?
3: Yeah, I actually tend to, I tend to recommend it be increased, uh, more often these days. It used to be definitely restricted based on this fear, but actually there are various other factors that can really increase the risk of this kind of neurologic complication. One of them is sarcopenia actually increases the risk of this developing. Um, there's some complicated metabolism that happens at the level of the muscle that can, that can contribute to this. Um, so really we don't want our patients with cirrhosis to develop sarcopenia, even though it's extremely common in those patients. And so I do not have concern about them increasing their dietary protein intake. I've heard some interesting statistics that because of that catabolic state that they're in, people with chronic liver disease like that, um, just even the overnight fast, like when you eat dinner and you go to sleep and then you get up in the morning, an overnight fast for somebody with uh, cirrhosis is equivalent to like a 72 hour fast for somebody with a healthy liver. And so a lot of hepatologists um, who are keyed up on this stuff, they tend to recommend that their patients with cirrhosis eat a high protein bedtime snack every night in order to mitigate some of those catabolic effects, which, you know, we could, we could get down with that, exactly, uh, just because of how, how much uh, more harmful it is for somebody with liver disease compared to somebody who does not have it. So this is definitely something where I fall pretty strongly on the side of increasing protein intake um, without much concern for uh, potential neurologic risk uh, from from increasing that intake. Yeah. So
2: in addition to like high protein diets, not really affecting blood ammonia levels at all in people with normal liver function, people with abnormal liver function probably would also benefit from likely a little bit more protein, particularly given at particular times but then the question becomes like well what about high protein intake and like other sorts of liver you know uh, disease particularly like non-alcoholic fatty liver disease which we've done a podcast on and it looks like when you the data on this you know large meta-analyses show that increased dietary protein intake uh is not correlated with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And in fact, in folks that replace a portion of their dietary carbohydrates with protein actually reduces fat content. So folks with some existing like non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, some fat in the liver, if they reduce uh, their intake of dietary carbohydrates and replace that with protein, seems like it actually reduces their sort of uh, uh, fatty liver stores, which would be a benefit in that situation. But all told, I'm just like, why do we care about what the liver is doing with respect to protein intake outside of very, very specific situations that are unrelated to talking about, you know, the normal healthy population? It's just, I don't know. This was a reach, admittedly you, a reach.
3: Yeah, well, I mean, if you hear people talk about like stress on those organs, like just not a thing to worry about in the vast majority, especially if you're in the fitness space, which already selects for a generally healthy population. So stop listening to anything <laughs> related to this that you hear in general. Yep.
2: Okay, so let's wrap this up here. Uh, episode 248, when protein attacks. So, first off, dietary protein intake in the US and most developed countries is rather high. Probably should not be the target for increased muscle gain or like gains from exercise. It's just not the anabolic lever that I would like choose to pick if I was limited to one. Um, I would pick exercise. So, there's. Again, the normal population who is insufficiently active, who does not exercise and does not lift weights, that's the majority of the population, they're getting enough dietary protein already. What you would prefer for them to do if you had to pick one anabolic lever to pull is to exercise. If you got to pull another lever, it would be related to the dietary pattern. So, like, keep the same protein intake, but get it from better sources. And then, third, if you're like, okay, so they're doing all those things, they're getting enough sleep, whatever, can I pull a final lever to maximize their gains? Sure. You could talk about, then increasing protein slightly to 1.4 to 1.6 grams of protein uh, per kilogram body weight per day. And in those instances, if they can't possibly get it from food, maybe protein supplementation could be useful. But when people are like, you need to eat more protein, it's like, do I though? Do I really? Are Probably you sure? need to train more.
3: Probably oh, need to train more.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's a, a far more useful anabolic lever to pull. With respect to risk, dietary protein intake, uh, when we look at like studies assessing dietary protein intake and different medical conditions, we must remember that that is not equivalent to the dietary pattern. That's far more relevant uh, it's far more relevant when discussing disease risk so i'm not concerned about total protein intake as much as i'm concerned with the total dietary pattern like again where's the protein coming from how many fruits and vegetables are they getting how many whole grains are they getting things of that nature um, but in any case increased dietary protein intake above the rda by many factors appears to be safe uh, well tolerated and likely beneficial for gains from training um, Protein intake higher than RDA values of protein do not increase the risk of kidney disease in those with normal kidney function or seemingly in those with impaired kidney function, does not increase the risk of kidney stones, does not increase the risk of osteoporosis, in fact, may be beneficial at reducing the risk of osteoporosis and fracture risk, does not increase the risk of liver disease or ammonia levels in the blood. And so I just think when people are scared of this protein boogeyman, you know, like protein's got to be bad for something, put stress on something, cause damage in something, it's like. Well, where's the evidence and how confident do you feel about that because i would have a very difficult time i could make an argument i could like cherry pick studies and whatever and and talk about mechanisms out the wazoo but then when it comes down to brass tacks like what happens clinically with these folks i'd be i'd come up empty-handed for the most part you just have to make a lot of leaps that i'm not comfortable making austin do you have a you have a take on that
3: I am inclined to agree. I think that, you know, we've seen cherry picking honestly going in both directions on this. You know, there are some very prominent, you know, vegan folks out in the in the scene that uh, make a lot of claims about the harms of, of protein which are, you know, not terribly well supported, but at the same time you know there's uh, there are some personalities that fall more on the i would say probably approaching carnivore if <laughs> uh, uh, end of things but even even some folks who are very keyed in on like concerns about population level sarcopenia and frailty and falls and things like that and they end up saying like the key to to dealing with this on the population level is to crank up dietary protein intake and it is like these people are not going to put on slabs of muscle and strength and gain you know dramatic functional uh, uh, improvements from, you know, eating 2.5 grams per kilo body weight per day of protein or something like that. Two way shakes. That's all we need. <laughs> just slamming more when they're, when they're insufficiently active, like getting that you could, you can get away with a pretty modest amount of protein intake if you're training enough. And if you want to consume up to the levels that we recommend, cool. The idea that you're going to keep putting on slabs of muscle and gaining tons of strength by going way higher than that, I find uh, unlikely.
2: Yeah. But you just think about it. Think how much protein we'd sell if we were like, "Look, the more protein you eat, the more jacked you're going to get." It's just science, guys. We're doctors. Yeah, makes sense. It seems totally to, at least, right? Yeah. So <laughs> you just you know. Look at the data. So in any case, this has been episode 248 of the Barbell Medicine Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Again, reminder, we've got new YouTube videos. Check that out. Just search Barbell Medicine at YouTube. We've got live in-person seminars coming up uh, in Australia. We'll be in San Antonio. Uh, We'll be in Europe. So if you're going to be in any of those areas, you want to hang out with us, check that out. It's all linked in the description below. And then finally, the apparel sale over tonight at 1159 Pacific Standard Time, 2359 if you're using military or hospital time. Uh, Use code APP20 for 20% off all apparel but before you guys go anywhere please leave us a five-star rating and a review it really helps drive traffic to our podcast so we can keep bringing you all the latest nuance and health and fitness from everyone here at barbell medicine i'm dr jordan feigenbaum thanks for listening we'll catch you next week and every week right here on the barbell medicine podcast